Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation for today will focus on China, so we're looking forward to having a wide-ranging, productive conversation, including hitting on considerations when it comes to investing in China, how to identify opportunities and the risks to be mindful of. We'll also spend some time on China's macroeconomic as well as its political landscape. So joining me once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back to UBS on air from our partners at Raliant Global Advisors, the firm's founder, chairman, and chief investment officer, Dr. Jason Su. So Jason, it's great to have you back with us here at UBS. Very much looking forward to hearing your insights today. Glad to be back, Dan. So, Jason, this conversation, it comes at a a timely moment. I know you just returned from a trip to China, so very much looking forward to hearing your boots on the ground perspective. Maybe as a good starting point, can you speak a bit to what brought you out there to China? Maybe some takeaways as far as meetings you had, what you picked up on while you were there, and then we can get a bit more granular and hit on some other topics. Absolutely. Um, You know, I want to get back as soon as things opened up and the quarantine restrictions were less severe. So I was in Hong Kong for a week and then in Beijing a week, Shanghai a week, Hangzhou a week. And Hangzhou, if you don't know, is the home of Alibaba and Ant Financial. And then ended my trip uh, uh, in Taiwan. So I wanted to be out there, uh, feel and experience it for myself to see what opening up is like uh, for China and to see, um, you know, how uh, the the other regions surrounding mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan are doing. You mentioned Shanghai in particular. I recall during the height of the pandemic, many of us saw how China shut down cities, tens of millions of people. It was quite stunning. Can you speak a bit to what it looks like on the ground today in Shanghai? And feel free if you want to speak to some other destinations you visited while you were over there. What does the post-COVID reopening look like in these cities? Yeah, so it was a very interesting contrast. Uh, in Shanghai, I don't experience uh, sort of almost any memory of COVID from the people there. There's not a lot of masking. Uh, it's, you know, bustling with uh, activities. Restaurants are, are packed, long queues, uh, malls are crowded, public transportation is crowded. Uh, and when I compare and contrast that to Hong Kong and Taipei, where there's uh, almost masking across the board for everyone, it feels like, you know, Shanghai had uh, gone the 180, went from being in lockdown to now uh, shaking that off, have forgotten that perhaps, you know, bad memory, and is fully embracing kind of the livelihood that once was Shanghai. Uh, so I don't actually experience a lot of, uh, kind of bitterness from that time. And in fact, it's sort of a running joke. Everyone's comparing, you know, whether they've got COVID twice or three times and a few remaining, you know, start who continues to, uh, to have dodged COVID and then taking that on as a, as a major pride. But otherwise, there's a good sense of humor about it. Um, and economic activities seem to return back to, uh, back to normal. Well, some encouraging takeaways when you think about where we were a year ago from today. So thank you for sharing what it looks like on the ground as of today. Can you maybe expand a bit as far as what the macroeconomic landscape looks like today? Well, so while consumption appears to be back to the normal level, I think it is very much a a tale of two cities. Um, I would say the the professionals, uh, folks that are in... You know, banking, finance, tech in the higher pay sectors, 
uh, seem to have recovered well, are willing to go out there and spend, and there's that bit of a revenge spending, revenge traveling. I do believe that uh, the other half uh, have, have, you know, yet to, to recover from the shock. You know, part of it is because unemployment, uh, they're laid off from factory work or just there weren't factory work to be had. Hours were reduced and, uh, and are still trying to rebuild their balance sheet due to um, the ravage of, you know, imposed on them, uh, whether because stock market decline or, or lack of labor income. Uh, so if you look at the aggregate statistics, it does look like recovery has been much more muted than what you might experience if you're sort of out and about trying to, uh, to, to you know, uh, spend money and consume. Um, so very much, I think it's a tale of two cities. The statistic does report the part that's sort of less seen when you're when you're on the street. That is, um, you know, the the, the less well-to-do uh, probably have meaningfully reduced consumption, and it's going to take a while for that piece to come back. So right now, the aggregate statistics a bit more muted, but uh, we uh, we are sort of patiently optimistic. Uh, hoping to see that to recover soon as well. Now, in the wake of the People's Congress, what are some policy mandates top of mind at the moment? What does the policy environment look like in China? Yeah, so to put a bit more context, uh, I think you know these acronyms can be confusing for people. The so last year, around late October time, we had the you know the uh, the National Party Congress, and just last month we have the National People's Congress. So the, the the last October we elected basically you know President Xi Jinping and the uh, Politburo and the standing members, and it's really the People's Congress, the National People's Congress, where kind of the mid-level managers, essentially all the people in all the provinces who will have to do the work, you know, put sort of grand plans into execution details. So that's the first time they've all gone together. They've all recently been appointed. Uh, so the way in which the political cycle works is uh, much of the clarity that people have been hoping for and, and, and looking out for when it comes to well, what does it mean that you know China wants to, to encourage you know more international capital to invest in China you know what does it mean for China to sort of focus on GDP growth um, so we'll, we'll see a very specific action items. Uh, from this point forward. Now, I would say these clarities will be forthcoming, uh, most likely probably toward the end of Q2. So that's a, that's kind of the speed of the political cycle and that, that process. And I think, you know, a lot of the disappointment where people thought, oh, you know, there's some high-sounding talk from high-level officials, but they haven't really translated into actual money spent by the government, you know, aggressive injection of liquidity by the central bank, or even clarity on the policy level. It's partly because, um, you know, the, the party congress is not where that happens. It's really post the people's congress um, that these finer policy points are made clear. Any sense for what the geopolitical landscape looks like? I know stateside there's tension in the media, but from the lens of the Chinese government, any indication of what that looks like today? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, part of the reason for being in Hong Kong and talking to people in Hong Kong, uh, being in Taiwan, talking to people in Taiwan, is to understand the, the geopolitics. So a few things. Um, the one thing that I think uh, that is really, really useful for everyone to, to pick up on is, you know, post the unanimous election of Xi Jinping, uh, you know, there could be a number of different emphases, right? Some could be very political, could be very social, those sort of things that we'd be, um, we, we in the West would be more concerned by. 
um, the emphasis has actually entirely been in slowing GDP. Uh, it's been how do we get per capita GDP to catch up to develop Asia and toward develop, you know, U.S. Uh, and, and, and other Western countries. As long as Beijing is focused on this key variable, GDP, GDP growth, per capita GDP, um, you know, I think we can rest assured that they, they will be focused on things that we would tend from an investor perspective to like, right? They want to focus on GDP, and they know for that it's got to be leaning more on the free competitive market to lean on the capital market, and policies are going to be more toward opening up, normalizing, uh, more sensible regulations, less bureaucracy, uh, more pro-business, pro-entrepreneurship. Uh, and I think that's that's the good news. So it's really important to, to, to note that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, Beijing continues to decide that GDP is the KPI that they're going to hold themselves to, that they're going to measure their success. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, really, um, it's, it's uh, where they draw their support and strength from, which is prosperous uh, and, and strong GDP growth. Um, so that's the good news. And then on the other front, I think... Um, Many of us have noted that uh, there's been a flaring up uh, in that you know tri 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 party relationship China U.S. and Taiwan because the president of Taiwan uh, President Tsai Ing-wen had made a visit to to the U.S. and spoken with uh, uh, Representative uh, McCarthy. Um, but what has been underreported was um, another president, a former president of Taiwan, Mr. Uh, or Dr. Ma Ying-jeou at the same time, decided, and I think this is quite coordinated from the part of Taiwan, decided to visit uh, mainland China during what's called the tomb sweeping uh, holiday, which is where people go back to their ancestral home, uh, go back to the village they came from, and then basically, you know, go, go and visit the tomb of their ancestors. So former President Ma ying of Taiwan uh, went to China, uh, made the round, uh, was very publicized to visit, um, went to key cities and obviously spoke at high level with, uh, key officials. And that was probably more of the focus domestically in China. At least what that signals is Beijing isn't just looking to escalate, right? While it's saber rattling outside, uh, you know, to the West, but domestically it is really trying to de-escalate by highlighting that, hey, the former president Ma Ying-jeou is visiting mainland China and is really seeking a, a you know, a, a more peaceful diplomatic relationship between Taiwan and mainland. Well, some interesting takeaways there on the geopolitical front. So, Jason, thank you for sharing some perspective there. Getting into individual sectors, where do you see capital flowing to at the moment? Are there certain sectors that seem to be thriving more so than others at this time? Well, you know, right now, uh, when you look at flows, you really want to look at kind of three key flows that drive markets, and, and there are varying degrees of um, informativeness. Uh, so generally in China, there's flow that comes from northbound, which means international capital through Hong Kong going into China. You got flows that are retail oriented, so you can see sort of you know subscriptions and redemptions into retail mutual funds as well as sort of retail brokerage account tradings, and then there's of course institutional, basically major pension funds, state control, investment funds, you know, sovereign wealth funds. Um, and right now, the state control funds have been very much sitting on the sideline and waiting. Um, the northbound flow, there was a, a 
meaningful inflow since uh, Party Congress last year, so post-October, but that's meaningfully reversed uh, in a profit-taking mode. So really, most of the activity has been very domestic retail, and domestic retails are always chasing themes. So the hottest themes, and you've seen that in terms of short-term stock price reaction, has been into anything that has to do with chat GPT, right? So there are lots and lots of companies in China who has nothing to do with, you know, AI chatbots are now saying they got a product, uh, and, and they're, you know, we're seeing, you know, amazing performances from, from firms that really have no fundamental and no technology in that space, but that are producing 100% returns over last month. So I think a bit of a bubble forming there. Uh, and another meaningful flow has been into uh, the large centrally connected state-owned enterprises, uh, in part because people are betting on uh, when that government injection of liquidity, when that policy tailwind comes, it will first and foremost flow in the direction of uh, the big state-owned enterprises. So that's been where we're seeing flows. Uh, and unfortunately, it also means a lot of flows have come out of the winners from last year. So, you know, investors are taking profits from funds that they have still some gains. Uh, so largely a lot of the EV battery um, stocks last year, uh, there's been major selling pressure selling into what I think are sort of long-term secular themes that, that one should really pay attention to, you know, healthcare, EV battery. Uh, those have been sold off heavily to finance uh, flows into the, the latest uh, bubble themes um, in, in sort of, you know, AI chatbots and uh, and stay on their prices. I do want to acknowledge that our chief investment office at the moment, reopening China does remain an investment theme that we've been talking about. If there might be any hesitancy out there, what might be the root cause of that? And what would you say are the risks to be mindful of as well when participating? I think looking at least in the short run, looking at China, uh, the fundamental for the next 12 months is going to be you know, I would say uninspiring at best and bumpy uh, potentially. Um, but it's not going to be the fundamental that will drive the stock market for the next 12 months. You know, in almost all bull markets, what we see is it starts with government policy. It starts with favorable macroeconomic policy, monetary policy. And in China, generally, it starts with the government spending money aggressively recognizing that uh, the private sector is uh, is still a bit shell-shocked, uh, you know, perhaps, um, you know, waiting to take the lead from the government. So the government's going to have to spend, and it will spend. It's going to inject uh, liquidity, make credit widely available. It's going to stabilize any industry that's heavily in debt and perhaps, you know, needing liquidity. And with that, uh, I think that's going to bring back sentiment. That's going to, you know, start uh, a new bull market run that is going to, you know, stabilize and, and perhaps in, in, in some markets, um, you know, bring back, um, rise in, in property prices, all of which will create a wealth effect. And that's going to have meaningful psychological impact. And you're going to see a stock market rally first before then all that government spending leads to then the supporting fundamentals to, to come through. So over the next 12 months, I think it's really going to be policy. Uh, monetary and fiscal-based um, policy that will drive the the uh, bull market. And one really doesn't have to agonize too much over oh, it's just how much 
the increase in GDP uh, can we expect out of out of the next 12 months? That's really, you know, I think on the stock market front is the key driver. Uh, of course, geopolitics is always going to be what creates that volatility from point A to point B. So even if we do expect, you know, a outperformance of China versus other markets, I think volatility will also tend to be larger. And that is just, I think, going to be a feature of the Chinese market uh, over probably the foreseeable future because of, you know, China wanting to make a bigger splash on the global political scene. And oftentimes those splashes, um, they can be positive, just like the, the recent visit from Macron, but they could also be negative uh, when it's more sort of the China-U.S. Um, dialogue where there's a lot more saber rattling. Maybe in the way of final thoughts or takeaways, if there's anything before we close out that you would like to reinforce for our listeners, especially when it comes to participating in China as an investment consideration. Well, first of all, I absolutely think people should be diversifying into China, right? You know, we know the free lunch in, in investing is diversification. So a lot of us have a lot of U.S. Uh, and whether China decouples from the U.S., whether China rise and become more of a competitor to the U.S., uh, you never know how that's going to shake out and who will be short-run winner. I think China and U.S. will both continue to be great trading partners and long-term winners in, in you know, the continued growth of global economy. So you got to be diversified to China because you already have a lot of the U.S. and China will represent a very diversifying, very differentiated exposure from demographics, from politics, from form of government, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and when you're diversifying to China, um, you got to be active because, like I mentioned, there are just a lot of things in China that are different than the way it is in the U.S. And you know, passively indexing makes sense in the U.S. It doesn't in China, at least not right now, given how it's a, a bubble-driven, very retail-oriented market, uh, and cap weighting will tend to, to actually put most of your money into the uh, most expensive bubbly stocks where you, you want to be active. So that's my take and my advice. Diversify there and go active. Well, Jason, that's great guidance to end on, and I do want to thank you again for your time. You've been very generous with your time and for providing some very unique perspective Fresh off your trip from China, I'm glad we were able to connect and do look forward to picking back up with the conversation. There's a lot here that we'll continue to track. There's a lot we can follow up on. So looking forward to having you back, Jason. But thank you again for your time today. Absolutely, Dan. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 